I want to take you guys back to the year A.D. 61. The Apostle Paul, who is a devoted follower of Jesus and a missionary to the world, is in the great city of Rome, which is kind of fun and exciting, but he's in prison, which is not really very fun and exciting. Now, it's not like a prison like you think of. It's not like he's behind bars in a prison cell with concrete and you know, metal and those sorts of things. He's under house arrest, which means he can't go anywhere. He's a prisoner of the state. He's not allowed to leave. He can like talk to some people who come and see him and folks can come and bring him meals and whatnot. So it's not like he's just like absolutely locked down, but he is stuck. He's not allowed to leave. And, and this, this for a man who traveled over 10,000 miles in his life, mostly on foot, this for a man whose one driving passion was to go to as many places as possible and talk about Jesus to people who'd never heard him and introduce people to Jesus that they could believe in him and plant churches and then come back a while later and strengthen those churches by visiting them personally. This is a man who was stuck under house arrest in Rome for two years, waiting for an opportunity to talk to the emperor to talk to the king. Now, he did have a chance to share the gospel with people who were around him, so he talked to the soldiers. The soldiers probably got really annoyed by hearing him talk. He talked to the soldiers, and he talked to anybody who happened to be coming by, and so he was certainly willing to take every opportunity he had in this particular situation to tell people about Jesus, but at a certain point, people just stopped showing up. They're not going to be there all the time. And he wasn't one to waste time. And so during this process, this two-year time frame where he's waiting for a chance to talk to the emperor about Jesus, when he has downtime, he writes letters. He wrote one of these letters to a group of Christians living in the city of Philippi. It was a great city back in the day. It was about 4,500 miles away from Rome. And this group of Christians were some people that he knew personally. He had planted this church 10 years before on one of his missionary journeys, taking the gospel to the far reaches of the empire. So he plants this church and, and they're following Jesus. He'd spent a little bit of time there, but not a lot. And they kind of moved on the process. And, and he thinks to himself, man, I, I just, I, I want to check in on these people in Philippi. I, I want to write a letter encouraging them to be faithful to Jesus and to continue walking in this gospel message that they believed. We have this letter in our Bibles we call it Philippians, and here's what it says. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to God's people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel boldly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. 
how the latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will actually turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are now going through the same struggle that you saw, saw I had, heard I had, and now see that I still have. And therefore, if you have any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, if any sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others." Have in you the same mindset that was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he poured himself out, taking the form of a servant, becoming in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good purpose." Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. 
but I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, who you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you, and he's distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, and he almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him to you, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Further, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to say the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those doers of bad works. Watch out for those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, we who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything a loss because the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. (laughs) I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Well, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not yet consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on to win the prize toward the goal to which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord. Always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful for your word. Philippians is is just one, such a small piece of it, um, but we ask that as we look at some of the themes in this letter tonight and tomorrow, that you would do what you do best. Know us and love us by communicating with us. That you alone, Lord, know the students in the room. You know your plans for them in the present and the future. You know which of them you're calling to various types of ministry, kingdom work, Christian service. You know which of them have in their plans to come to this place or have in yours. So we pray, God, that you would move in our hearts this weekend and more important than the decision about where to go to college, we pray that for each of us who touch this weekend in any way, that you would work in our lives so that even if we can't perceive it in the moment, this weekend would just be one more step closer to you. Tonight, we ask you to bless our time as we unpack just a small portion of this letter. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, and together we said, amen. Uh, Our vision for the weekend is unique, and I'm very much looking forward to it. You guys know what this is. This is Ambassador's Weekend, and so what we want to do, as you've already been told, is give you a bit of a taste of Ozark Christian College. Now, I'm going to be up front with you. We've got kind of two purposes. So some of you may already be thinking, yeah, I don't think I'm going to come here. Well, first of all, let me just go ahead and say, I always ask freshmen, uh, and when I have them in class, like, how did you come to Ozark? And like 75% of them say, well, I swore I'd never come here, and then something happened, and I came. So you're right. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. So you never know. Uh, 
Uh, but even still, some of you aren't, and that's perfectly fine. So let me help you understand kind of what we're trying to accomplish. We have two goals, and I don't even think they're in competition with one another. One goal, cards on the table, recruit. We want to give you a taste of Ozark so that you can try to discern whether or not you want to come to this place, whether or not God is leading you here unquestionably. So in the messages, part of what I want to talk about is what you can expect to be offered to you if you decide to come here. That's sort of my role in this a little bit. But our second goal is to encourage you in your faith. And that's for all of you. I don't care where you are going to go to school. I know that there are probably some of you in here who are fully devoted. There are probably plenty of you in here who want to be more devoted than you are. There are probably a handful of you in here for sure who aren't even sure that you want to do much with this whole Jesus thing. There's probably some of you in here who aren't even sure why you're here because you don't know if you believe. Let me tell you why you're here. Because God designed that this particular group of people would gather together this weekend. I believe that. About two-thirds of the group said, ah, we can't come because of the weather. You guys have tougher leaders, so give them some props whenever you see them. So what I want to say is, no matter what, like whoever you are, I believe that you could be blessed by this weekend. Now, for our times together, uh, one last thing about what we're doing, and we'll just kind of keep jumping in. I, I don't even know what to call what it is that I'm going to be doing with you. Some of you guys are familiar with the word sermon. That's like when a preacher preaches. You guys are familiar with the idea of a lecture. That's when a teacher lectures in class. So I'm supposed to sort of give you a little bit of a taste of Ozark. So it's going to be kind of this mix between the two. These aren't exactly sermons. They're not exactly lectures. I don't know what the heck they are. I'm just going to try to open up Philippians and share some thoughts from the word with you. So today, if you don't have your Bibles out open already, open them up to Philippians. If you are new to the Bible, there's no shame in looking at the old table of contents. Or even if you're not new to the Bible, but you don't know Philippians, find that thing. So Philippians, you can find it in your Bible. You can find it on your phone if you got the Bible app. We're not going to try to cover the whole letter tonight or even this weekend, but we're going to grab some themes. The theme that we're going to talk about this evening comes out of the opening section of the letter, Philippians 1, verses 1 through 11. I won't read the whole thing to you again. I just want to draw your attention to some specific things. Here's the general truth. Let me give you the general truth and then the specific truth I want to talk about tonight. The general truth is that the gospel changes people. Now, of course, this is kind of a way of saying that God changes people through the gospel, but I think you get that. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, the message that God has revealed in Jesus changes people. If you allow this to work in you, you will not be the same person that you once were. I think that Paul shows this as clear as day in a number of places in the opening section of this letter. Let me just remind you of one. Right there in verse 6, when he starts to talk about how he prays for them. I thank God when I remember you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then look at what he says next, verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, listen, like this is going to change you. You shouldn't be the same person at the end of this process that you are today. Matter of fact, if you engage this process at all, you won't be. And it's not my confidence in you, it's my confidence in the one who is working in you. God changes people through the gospel, but I don't want to leave things that general. I want to get more specific. First of all, though, let me ask the question. I don't know how much you know about Paul. How did Paul know that the gospel changes people? Because Paul used to be a very different person. We're meeting him in the early 60s of the first century when he's been following Jesus for a good solid three decades or so. And the gospel has done some work in him, but he didn't used to be like this. You fast forward about 35 years, 
He wants nothing to do with Jesus. Matter of fact, he's so committed to stopping Jesus's name from becoming famous that he travels around the cities where he grew up and even goes on some journeys specifically to find Christians so that he can drag them out of their homes, bring them down to the leaders of his semi-government and have them put on trial and hopefully put to death. The first ever Christian who died for his faith was a man named Stephen. And the guy who oversaw that process, people throwing stones at him, the man in charge in that moment was Paul. Same guy. And here he is now full of love for anyone and everyone, even those who hate him, ready to preach the gospel of Jesus no matter what it costs him. The gospel changed him. And one of the things he would say, he would say that the gospel, here's what I want to say tonight, the gospel makes us wise. He would say, the gospel has made me a wiser person. What does that mean? Well, wisdom isn't a complicated idea. It just means you understand the situation that we're in. You know what needs to be done, and you have the courage and the character to do it. Paul would say, before, I thought I was wise, but I was not wise. I did not understand the situation that we were in. I thought Christians were the enemies. I thought Jesus was a fake. And I misunderstood our situation. And as a result, I was doing all sorts of dumb things. And he recognizes that the gospel has flipped him around in that sense. He does now understand our world, himself, and what he is to do. This is, I think, what he's talking about. I mean, you see it all throughout this letter. I don't know if you caught this, but Paul's talking a lot about your mind. Be of the same mind, have this mindset, think about these things. Here in our passage, I want you to look again at verse nine when he talks specifically about what he prays for them. He says, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. In other words, that you'll become more loving because you better understand things. And then look at the next phrase, so that you may be able to discern what is best. Some of you don't understand Christianity because you think that Christianity is just a list of rules for you to follow. That is not what this is about. Christianity is first and foremost what God does for you. And then the response part, your part in this, is not just about following rules. It's about becoming a certain kind of person, a person who is wise, a person who understands your situation, knows what to do, and has the courage and the character to do it. Wisdom and knowledge are two different things. My wife likes to say that you know knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, but wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. (laughs) I think that's true. Wisdom is knowing what to do. Now, I don't know how long you've lived or how many times you've come up to a situation where you wanted to know what to do, but you just didn't. Paul is saying that the gospel will turn you into the kind of person who does. Wisdom. So here's the question. What if you were wise? What if when people thought of you, they thought of wisdom? What if when they heard your name or or saw your face, they thought there is a person who understands our situation, who knows what to do, the right thing, the best thing, and does it? I don't know what people think about you, nor do I know how much you care about what people think of you, but what if when they thought of you, they thought of wisdom? And what's more, what if when you thought of yourself, you thought of wisdom? Not like the wisdom of of a gray-haired sage, but what if you knew that for your age and your station in life, given where you're at, you actually have some understanding of who God is and who you are and what he wants you to do? What if when you thought of yourself, you thought of wisdom because you were, in fact, a person who is wise? Some of you grew up in church. You maybe heard the story of young King Solomon. He was stepping into power, and God said to him, I'll give you anything you want. Just ask. He didn't ask for money. He didn't ask for horses. He didn't ask for soldiers. He didn't ask for more wishes. He said, God, I want wisdom. 
And I'll be for real with y'all. When I was younger, I didn't really think that sounded all that sexy. You know what I mean? Like, ooh, wisdom, good choice, Solomon, you know? Sort of feels to me a little bit like uh, deciding to eat Cheerios every day for the rest of your life or something. And not the honey nut ones that taste good, like the old non-sweet ones that kind of taste like cardboard and feel about the same. Like wisdom just, I don't know, doesn't always seem that interesting to us. I don't know you yet, which means I don't know how much you want to be wise but I'm just gonna operate on the assumption that there is at least a part of you that recognizes, yeah, I wish I knew more than I do. And, and not just knowledge, I wish I better understood how to make my way through this world than I currently do today. And I'm saying that the gospel will make you wise. Wow, how does God make us wise? Well, the gospel, okay, but that doesn't really answer the question. Practically speaking, how does he do that? Well, you're looking at the answer. Like Paul wanted to encourage these people to become better at knowing what to do in their concrete situations in life. And so what he did is he wrote them a letter so that they would read it and that they would talk about it and that they would learn from it. And this isn't just something that Paul is deciding to do. God is the one who put into Paul's mind the idea of writing this letter and God oversaw the process of this letter so that it would be precisely as he wanted it to be. And God oversaw the centuries-long process of this letter along with others being collected into a book called the Bible that you and I gather around to read, to think about, to discuss and talk about so that we might understand it. This book holds the secrets to what it is that you want. I mean, it's not just a Philippians thing. Early in the story of God, when this guy Moses, maybe you've heard his name, was about to die and he was about to hand the reins of leadership over to a young man named Joshua, he's giving him this charge. And in this charge, what he says to him is, don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. You flip forward a little bit, you may have heard the book of Psalms. Psalm 1 starts by saying, happy is the person who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. That means they don't do what the wicked people say to do. They don't stand in the way that sinners take. They don't sit in the company of mockers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, they meditate day and night. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. Second Timothy 3, Paul writes a letter to Timothy. He's writing Philippians with Timothy. Later, he'll write a letter to Timothy. And he's encouraging Timothy to stay true to the faith. And he encourages him to stick with what those taught him who first gave him the scriptures. And he says in 2 Timothy 3, 14, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. If you want to become wise, become a student of the word. I'll talk to you about Ozark in a minute, but this is obviously so much bigger than Ozark. Let me tell you two things that each and every one of you can do with the Bible that will make you wiser than you are today. The first thing you gotta do is, this is uh, not very surprising, you gotta read it. Amen. I spend a lot of time with people who say good things about the Bible. Maybe you'd be one of them. I spend a lot of time who, with people who think other people should read the Bible. People who believe that the Bible is true people who believe that the story that the Bible tells is the best story ever told, people who would say that this is the most important book ever written, and people who I sometimes wonder if they read it for themselves. This makes no sense. It's like pub and soap if you never take a shower. You know what I'm saying? Like imagine if you're this person who's like, like, uh, <laughs> Like you just, what if, what if you like went to school one day and you're like, I'm sure this is none of you, but you're like, oh, I found this new soap, guys, it's so great, it's like the best soap in the world. If you, if you clean yourself with it, like you'll smell good, you'll look good, all this kind of stuff. You come back the next day and you're like, oh, guys, this soap is so great. Like I believe in this soap, it's the best soap I've ever found. And you come day after day after day talking about the soap, but you never take a shower. People are gonna look at you like, you stink. Why would I want your soap? You know what I'm saying? 
And yet, let me ask you a question. If you showered as frequently as you read the Bible, what would you smell like? Would you smell good? Or would you be embarrassed about going outside? And I'm not trying to guilt you. Let me be careful. I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I don't think not reading the Bible is bad so much as it's dumb. So you got to read it. You gotta, I know it's hard. I know it's a strange book. It's weird. But you're going you're gonna to make more progress trying than not. But you can't just read it. Let me just the second thing you got to do. You got to meditate on it. I hope that word's not weird to you. I don't mean that you like sit cross-legged and say om over and over and over again. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about biblical meditation, which means you get the thoughts of Scripture in your mind and you just keep them there. You just hang out with them. I'm not trying to dog folks, but I think a lot of the people I know who do read the Bible, they don't really get a whole lot from it and they walk away and blame the Bible. And I don't necessarily think the problem is so much with the Bible, it's with the way we sometimes approach it. We just want it quick, you know? Just get in, get out, and go. It doesn't work like that. Think about it like this. It's a bit cold outside. Some of you came, how many of you came from places that experienced a little bit of snow this past week? Yeah, we're like the only part of the country that isn't being snowed on right now. Uh, anyway, imagine that you're in like, I don't know, Minnesota. Or imagine you're in Washington. I don't know if it snows in Washington. Does it snow in Washington? Depends on which part you're in. Forget Washington. It snows in Minnesota. Imagine you're in Minnesota, right? And it's a snowstorm, and you're like, you're like stuck outside. I don't know why, but this is, we do this with scenarios. You're like walking through the, 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 the woods, and for some reason you decided to take a hike, and you're lost, and it's freezing, and you, your coat is like getting wet, and your gloves are wet, and you're, you've been so cold, you're angry. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Like you just, nobody better talk to you right now, because whatever you say is not going to be nice, and you're just angry, and you just feel like you're going to die. And then as you're walking through the woods in this crazy snowstorm, you look ahead, and you see what looks like smoke coming out of a house. And you're like, you got to be kidding me. This is amazing. And so you make your way toward the smoke coming out of the house. And sure enough, there's a house and there's a porch and you walk up to the porch and you, there's a door and you jiggle the doorknob and it's unlocked. So you open up the door and you walk in and there's a blazing fire and you walk over to the fire and you're like, this is amazing. And you take your gloves off and you hold your hands out and you count to 10 and you turn around and you walk back outside. Let me ask you a question. In that situation, are you warm? No. And yet I think this is often what we do with the Bible. I'm just going to hop in. Let's see. I'm going to read a verse. All right. And in the ninth year, in the 10th month, on the 10th day, the word of the Lord came to me. All right, sweet. Okay, Lord, may the word of the Lord come to me. Peace out. I'm going off and do whatever I'm doing. That, I think, is sometimes what we do. You can't do that. Man, you've got to linger by the fire of the word if you want this book to make you warm. I wish I could do this for you. I can't. All I can do is tell you that it works. Read it. Meditate on it. This is for everybody. Now, let me say a few things about Ozark. If you're wondering whether or not you should come to Ozark, you should ask the question, what makes Ozark unique? Now, I want to be careful here because it's not a competition. I am not dogging any other college or school or ministry training situation. There are so many different ways God raises up kingdom workers. God raises up Christian servants. But what makes Ozark unique? And I'll tell you what makes Ozark unique is that you will not find another undergraduate program anywhere in the country, to my knowledge, where you will spend more time in this book. You can find a lot of wonderful training programs that do some things that we can't do. I believe that. You can find some wonderful universities and colleges that offer you some advantages that we can't offer, but you will not find anywhere where you will spend more time in this book. When I was a student here, we'll just stick to the New Testament alone. I took a class on Matthew. I took a class on John. I took a class on Acts. I took a class on Romans. I took a class on 2 Corinthians. I took a class on Galatians and Ephesians. I took a class on Philippians and Colossians. I took a class on First and Second Thessalonians. I took a class on the book of Revelation. And I think I'm forgetting something, but that just about sums it up. You will have more opportunity to study the Bible here than anywhere else. And the reason why is that Ozark was never designed just to be a college. 
Ozark was a dream. There's actually a book called Ozark Christian College. <laughs> it's written by one of the former academic deans here, a man named Lynn Gardner, who just passed away a few months ago. And the opening words of this book say, Ozark Christian College is more a vision than an institution. It is a vision of training men and women for Christian service by teaching the word of Christ and the spirit of Christ. A little bit later in that same statement, it says, the goal of Ozark Christian College is not to maintain the college, but rather to accomplish its mission. It's, it's not just a school. The school is just the form that it takes. There's something much deeper than that. And from its beginning, we have believed that the best way to make people wise is just stick them in front of the word. It's not so much about my theological system or my convictions on this or that issue. It's getting you to open this thing up and engage it in such a way that you might be changed. There's this magazine that's been going out for years. The college it used to be called The Compass. Now it's called The Ambassador. Back in 1955, here's something you would find in The Compass. It says, Ozark Bible College, that's what it used to be called. Ozark Bible College undertakes to teach its students to understand the Bible, to teach the Bible, and to live according to the Bible. Why? Well, I'll give you my rationale. If I'm ever trying to talk about why I think Ozark is valuable, it's actually fairly simple for me. There's sort of this three-step process in my thinking. First of all, I think that God is most glorified and the world is best served when churches are strong. I believe that. When churches are doing well, God is glorified and the communities around those churches are blessed by their presence. Second phase for me is churches are strongest when their leaders are at their best. You might, I don't know, you might go to a church where the, you know, the leadership has some issues here or there or whatever. Totally get that. You Maybe you go to church where you love your leader. That'd be wonderful. But I believe that generally speaking, churches can survive a lot, but generally speaking, churches thrive and are healthy when leaders are at their best. Here's the third phase for me. Leaders are at their best when their lives are saturated in the word. I think it is important for leaders to understand how to run an organization. I think it is important for leaders to understand how to talk to the city dignitaries. I think it is important for leaders to have all sorts of things in their quiver of arrows. But I think the most important thing for leaders of the people of God is that they know this book. I'll tell you in the words of someone else, not myself, a man who you'll hear his name throughout the rest of the weekend. This guy, Seth Wilson, he was a tiny man, like five feet tall. But the dude was a boss. He was just a little, he was a power, he was just full of power and full of scripture. Anyway, one of the things, he, he answers the question, why do we make so much of the Bible? In this book called The Mind of Christ, he says, as, I want you to hear these words. As readers of the New Testament, we have the great privilege of thinking Christ's thoughts after him, of filling our minds with the mind of Christ. That's what we do when we read the Bible. One of my professors who's still teaching here, he'd be embarrassed if he knew I was telling this story. I don't even think he knows I know this, but his name is Mark Scott. And um, when I was a student, I remember, uh, you know, he had shared, or it's kind of, for some reason, we were kind of aware that he had this Bible reading plan. You ever try to do that, read the Bible through in a year or something like that? And so he had this Bible reading plan that he was working on, and uh, this student one time went to him and said, uh, okay, so tell me about your plan. I do this, this much Old Testament, this and this New Testament. And the student said, uh, so what do you do when you miss a day? And Mark Scott just looked at him, and then he said, I don't miss a day. <laughs> I'm sure he was telling the truth. That's the kind of people that built this place. And by God's grace, that's the spirit of this place that we hope continues to endure. Here's what I'm saying. If you come to Ozark, you will be given every opportunity to become wise by studying Scripture. Look, I know you don't know most of the people I just mentioned, Lynn Gardner, Mark Scott, you don't know me, you don't know Seth Wilson, some of them you're never gonna know. And they don't know you, but they know something that we too easily forget, that the word of God is living and active. 
sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces even to dividing joint and marrow, soul and spirit. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Folks, this is a Bible. It is a book, or a library really, a collection of 66 books written over the span of two millennia by a couple dozen authors. It is a book that was originally written in Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew, which we read either by learning those languages or relying on the translations of those who do. It's a book that the church has always tried to live with to varying degrees of success, a, church, a book that many people have fought over and in some cases given their lives for. And it is a book with which most of you have grown up, seeing it, I don't know, on a bookshelf, on a coffee table, in the hands of your pastor or your parent or yourself. It is a book on the basis of which this school was created and around which this school continues to be uniquely organized because it is a book that we believe God uses to reveal the truth. And as we read this book, God will make us wise.